0: Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word and your presence, your word, your spoken word, your written word, in which you initiate a relationship and a salvation for people who are undeserving. We thank you for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, that enables us to understand with spiritual eyes the things that you have said and are saying. We ask right now that we would be immersed right now in the, in the power and presence of God. The love of the Father, the work of the Son, and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. So that we can take what you have said to your church thousands of years ago and in the present day. Not only listen to it, but obey it. That we may come away from this, Lord, changed and renewed in knowledge after the image of the one who has made us. We want nothing less, Lord, than to be like Christ. Not just outwardly, but inwardly and all the way around. May our hearts and our bodies and our social relationships reflect the inner character of of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. You are the greatest thing to happen to us, God. In this brand new year, as we look forward, you are still the greatest gift. You are the great King. You are the precious Savior and our Lord, and we pray that we would become more like you and more in love with you, more entranced and captivated by everything that you are. And we pray that you would do this through your holy word now as we study In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you and all filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Paul starts off with a word of thanksgiving. In the middle of that backdrop that we just saw on screen about this this. Uh, story of Christ that is taking over not only individuals like Paul and Epaphroditus, but also whole communities, we see Paul speaking to one of those communities, a little church in the uh, town of Philippi, uh, that isn't even in proximity to Paul, he's in a, a Roman prison speaking to a church in Philippi, and he starts off with a word of thanksgiving, a promise of assurance, and a little prayer request. It's actually not so little at all, it's actually a stunning prayer request. Three things. Starts off with a word of thanksgiving. Here is, uh, I th- I'm thanking God. In other words, this is not just a casual, obligatory uh, uh, greeting to the church, but it's, it's loaded with things that are coming out of the heart of the Apostle Paul. And he, when he gives a thanksgiving, he's, he's really thanking God for something that has happened already. And then he'll give a promise of assurance. In other words, he is assuring them, he is promising them that something will happen later. Thanking God for something that happened in the past. Assuring them that something is going to happen later. And then he offers a prayer request for something that hap- will happen in that moment. And so here's what he's doing when he offers that, that word of thanksgiving in verses 3 through 5. You have, to, you have to step into Paul's feet right now, into his shoes. This, this is not just a casual greeting to start off a letter. Paul right now is feeling all the feels as he pens this letter to the church in Philippi. It says in, in verse 4 that he is, he is filled with joy when he thinks about them. They stir up joy in his heart. He's, he's not even in the same town as them. He's in a prison. And yet in verse 7, he, he speaks about how he feels about them. Also in verse 7, he describes how he holds them in his heart. And when he uses the word heart, uh, the word there is, is literally guts or entrails. I, I feel you guys in the deepest part of me, in, in, my, in my gut. In verse 8, he speaks of how he yearns for them. And, and the way that he yearns for them, he, he describes as, as the affection That comes with Christ. This is a a deep feeling that Paul opens up this letter with. And I I, want to start this off our remainder of the morning by asking what would cause a guy like Paul sitting in a Roman prison far removed from this Roman colony to feel so deeply about this little unassuming church? Why would he feel all the feels over them? And there's one word I want you to hone in on verse 5. It says, because of your partnership. No, just want to stop there before we move on. Because of your partnership. The word that Paul uses uh, is the word koinonia, that is translated partnership. You might have heard that, that word before. If you've ever gone to a family camp or you have a coffee mug that says koinonia on it. Uh, it's that word that we associate with fellowship because that's what it means. Koinonia is, is biblical Fellowship. Now, that might be as far as we get. We just understand that biblical fellowship just just has to do with fellowshipping, whatever that means. Uh, And for some of us, we we might not really know the, the deep, robust meaning of biblical fellowship. For some of us, maybe fellowship is hanging out with believers as opposed to hanging out with unbelievers, So when I hang out with my unbelieving friends at work, we're hanging out. But when I hang out with my Christian friends, it's fellowship. Or you might say, well, when I go to uh, the church gathering on Sunday morning, uh, I am worshiping uh, through the sermon and in the music and in prayer. But then I stay 10 minutes longer and I eat a donut, and that is fellowship, right? We might think of fellowship in those terms. It's just hanging out. No that misses kind of the deep, robust view of fellowship that Paul has, which I'm going to explain. But before I do, I want each of us to ask us this probing question of ourselves. Think of your friendships. Think of the people that you hang out with. Think of your little social sphere and your, your kind of social atmosphere, your friends. And ask yourself of this, what are those friendships? What are your friendships? Based upon. All friendships are based upon something. What are yours based upon? I want you to think about that honestly. Might come up with a variety of reasons or a variety of of reasons for why you gather with certain people. Sometimes we gather around a shared interest, right, that we are passionate about could be passionate about anything you might be passionate about sports so you meet with people that have that same interest or coffee or your children you might not have anything in common with uh, uh, another father or a mother except that you both have kids and it's completely turning your life uh, inside out and so you gather with people of like mind and situation and for you that's enough uh, it might be school, you might be a college student, and so you gather with people that are also in school, you're also in a dorm with them, so you have this shared proximity. Uh, depending on where you are, you might also gather with people based on shared experiences. Uh, my brother-in-law, Blake, is from a Tascadero. he's about as country as you can get, owns two tractors, they're sitting in his backyard, and he and I have something in common together, tri-tip. We love tri- oh, and, and Brianna, uh, my wife, his uh, sister. We have in common Brianna and tri-tip. We have a mutual love for tri-tip. He was recently relocated to Texas because of work and I remember him calling Brianna on the phone in a state of distraught anxiety and he said to Brianna, there's no tri-tip in Texas. <laughs> and she's like, what do you mean? It's Texas. Like the the barbecue capital of the world. Just look somewhere else. I have looked all over the state of Texas. There is no tri-tip. And then by that time, I grabbed the phone from Brianna because I was was deeply hurt and offended and confused. I said, what do you mean? No tri-tip. And he went on to describe over here it is a throwaway meat, whatever that means. Uh, They don't use it. Over here we don't have tri-tip. They have brisket. And we spent some time grieving that loss uh, (laughs) that only him and I could understand. And come to find out, Tri Tip is only something that is very Southern California. Did you know this? Very Southern California. But here in Southern California, we love Tri Tip. There are some other things, if you hone in more on Santa Barbara, there are things like health and fitness. Uh, You might uh, unify with a certain uh, community of people around hot yoga, I don't know, essential oils, CrossFit. There's so many different things that get people together. Um, So there might be some shared interests that form communities, but there's other times where we simply gather around things that are destructive, or at the best, are just surface things. It might be drinking alcohol. That's a big thing in Santa Barbara. Uh, if you ask yourself, you know, you might party with a, a certain group of people. and You might drink a lot on the weekends with them. If you ask yourself, if we took away, if we removed alcohol from our community, would we have anything uh, in common? And if your answer is no, then you simply, your community is based on drinking. Uh, there's other things like that. Uh, hookups. Just... Uh, just a, a one night stand that that happens a lot uh, everywhere. Uh, gossip. There are communities that cent- are centered specifically on tearing other people down. So on one end you have good things that communities are gathered around. On the other hand, you have destructive things that communities are gathered around. And, and I would say that some of those things that bring us together are really just masking a deep personal pain. So maybe we could say our our, our pain uh, creates community. But then, we also sometimes gather, but don't even really know what we're gathering around or what for. Uh, we just know, especially if you're a Christian, you see in the Bible, community and fellowship, you know, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We know that we're supposed to be together, but we don't quite know to do what or what for. And so, we might like the ideal of community, and so our get-togethers are based simply on the necessity of getting together, but nothing more. Uh, In Christian circles, we might even couch that with some uh, beautiful spiritual language like transformative community or organic or authentic or deep. But still, we have no idea why we're gathering except that we're supposed to gather. And so there's a variety of reasons why we can get together. Some good, some bad, some meaningless. And some are good, some are not. But really, none of the things that I shared, Uh, from drinking to Bikram yoga have the capacity they don't have the capacity to hold people together in a very meaningful significant and transformative way they might be good things fun things that you should continue to do some of those things that i mentioned not all of them but you have to understand that you were created out of the garden of eden as a relational animal a being Uh, You uh, thrive on deep, meaningful relationships, and none of these things have the capacity to transform you the way that you were intended. And so that's where we get, from the Bible, this robust picture of fellowship and community as it was meant to be. And it's simply used by the term koinonia. Uh, And while we might think of fellowship in a variety of ways, the Bible has a specific idea of fellowship uh, that's very involved. In the first century, that word fellowship, or koinonia, actually was commonly used to refer uh, to commercial, uh, it, it had commercial overtones. So as an example, if you know, John and Harry bought a boat and started, it, uh, started a fishing business together, they would enter into koinonia. They would enter into a fellowship, or what Paul says in, in Philippians, a partnership, Okay? Uh, In Romans chapter 15, verse 26, when the Macedonian Christians send money to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem, they are entering into koinonia. They're entering into fellowship with those other Christians in Jerusalem. They're not even in the same town, uh, but they're experiencing fellowship. And so the heart of true fellowship in the Bible has to do with self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. And you see that this is something far bigger than just me and my interests, and it's also far bigger than our community and the sake of community. It actually transcends all of those things, and it brings us together. Now, that is a true concept. That's a true reality. Even today, thousands of years later, whether you're religious or not, there's an author by the name of uh, Randy Frazee who uh, uh, endeavored... uh, on this experiment to study the most effective places of community. And he wasn't just boxed into religious communities, although he included that, but all sorts of communities. He he undertook this research project uh, studying uh, communities ranging from the life Jesus had with his disciples to military bases to even uh, uh, street gangs, looking at those areas where community was very strong and powerful. And he identified some similarities across all of them, which included, at the very top of the list, a shared common purpose. Also, commonplace and common possessions. But at the top of the list, they all had a shared purpose. They had something that was driving them. And Frizee notes that some of the most healthy communities are the ones with a lot of sharing, including that shared purpose. What we just saw in the video uh, uh, as an example, that shared story of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is really getting after when he uses the word koinonia or fellowship or partnership in this verse. He's speaking about gathering around something that is bigger than you or me and bigger even than our community, bigger even than our church. And I want to stop at this point and ask you, do you have this in your life? You might have friends or family. You might have people that you gather with, even with some shared interests. But do you have what Paul is speaking of here? Do you have something that transcends your life, your family, your community, your church, that actually pulls you together. And maybe you don't. Maybe you don't know if you do or not. And that's okay. I'm not saying this to give you a guilt trip. I'm saying this to make you aware of what is being made available to you. And we're right here studying what Paul has to say about it. And the kingdom of God is making this available to people who don't have it. But we, we have to ask, okay, what is that common purpose Paul is so enlivened by that's bringing this Philippian church together. And uh, in the next phrase, uh, promise I'm not going to spend 10 minutes on every word as we go through this. Uh, this is just a really rich verse right here. But he says, because of uh, I'm, I'm feeling all the feels, I'm praying with joy, I'm all of these things because of your partnership in the gospel. There's something big. That's big. Depending on what your uh, idea of the gospel is, what would some of you say the gospel is? What goes through your mind when someone says the gospel? What do you think of? How would you define it? You might say, well, the gospel is, is good news. Well, good news about what? Some of us might say, well, it's, it's good news that we have been forgiven of our sins. Others might say, uh, you know, they'd go back to Protestant Reformation theology. It's a justification by grace alone through faith alone. That's the gospel. Others might say, uh, the gospel is getting to heaven uh, when we die. Jesus died so that we can get to heaven uh, when we die. And you know, it might include all of those things and many more. Those are benefits. But it's the gospel is far bigger than any of those individual benefits. And it's almost reductionist to describe those things as the gospel. Let me, let me give you a parallel example. If I were to say, what is math? Mathematics. And someone were to respond, math is two plus two equals four. Now you might be inclined to say, well, that's a formula based on math, but math is actually so much larger then that formula, math is the abstract science of number and quantity and space. And a small specific application of that is two plus two equals four. It's the same with the gospel. Forgiveness is a, a, a benefit of the gospel, but it is just one vignette. The gospel is actually huge. And to give us a definition of it, I just want you to read Jesus' own words about it. Seems like a good place to start. See if we can get it right here. Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Anybody see it? I'll give you another one. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew uh, chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus describes at the end of his earthly ministry, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. What is the gospel according to Jesus? It is good news about his kingdom. The gospel is good news specifically that God's kingdom has been made available to us in Christ. That is a huge story to build a community around. Paul goes on to say that they have been participating in that story from the first day, uh, assuming that's when they got converted, until now. In other words, it's an ongoing formation. Their, their community, their church has been ongoing, uh, has had this ongoing formation by Christ and his kingdom from the first day until now. And it is causing Paul to be overjoyed at the sight of what the power of the gospel is doing. Uh, I th- the point of this section of the text, I think, is this. It is that the good news of Christ and his kingdom is what the Philippians fellowship is based upon and continually formed by. You want something large and in charge to base your life and your social community on? The gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ. Now, from there, right, Paul gives thanks for what has happened Now he speaks about what he knows is going to happen. He issues a promise in verse 6. This is a great verse right here. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What is that good work? Now, if your gospel is reduced down to a benefit, like I have been forgiven, that verse doesn't really make sense to you, because you're like, I've been forgiven once, that's all I need, one and done. I was saved uh, back in 1982, I don't need anything more. What is Paul saying that God is going to finish what he has started, that he's going to bring me to completion? I'm already complete, can't you tell? But if the gospel is what Paul and Jesus and the other writers and the whole Bible is describing it as, as the kingdom of God presently available to transform people, then this verse is beautiful. I am sure of this, that he who began that good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That good work, again, means a community that is shaped by and around the presence of Christ and his kingdom. Not only the Philippian church, but reality. And Calvary Chapel, and Isla Vista Church, and the Episcopalian church down the street, and the African church down over on Olive, and so on and so forth. God's promise to his people, I am not going to stop. I'm going to finish what I started in all of you. You will be shaped and formed around the presence of Christ in his kingdom. I'm going to bring it to completion. What we also see in that is that that good work is not over. You're not just converted to Christianity and then you just wait for Christ to come. But this is an ongoing process in which we are continually being developed. So you could think of this verse in two statements one, we're not done yet. Two, we're not alone either. 2017, brothers and sisters. You're not alone, and you're not done. Amen. You're not alone, and you're not done. And God's not done with you. He's continuing a process in you and through you until you see him face to face and are transformed into his image. And that same God who steps into human history that we just celebrated for Christmas, for Advent, and who, uh, who people put their faith in him is now personally promising to complete what he started in each of those individuals and in in those communities. And you might ask yourself at this point, well, to complete what? And this is where Paul ends with his rather stunning and beautiful request. He says in verse verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's his prayer. He just thanked God for what happened. He's promising you what's gonna happen and now he's praying for a present reality to take over your lives right now. The first thing he says is that your love may abound. I feel really bad that I don't have hours to speak about love. I've spent whole sermons, multiple sermons, trying to unpack love. I feel like I barely did it. This is the most robust, rich, wonderful concept in the entire Bible. God himself is love. So I'll just say in like one second, for the purpose of moving through this, that love in, in what Paul is saying right here is the ability to place high value on another person. Whether it's God or people, that and that is expressed in actively seeking to bless them. You think so highly of someone else that you uh, you want to bless them without any desire for reciprocation, and even sometimes at risk of uh, suffering as a result. At the expense of self. So much do you love that person, you actually desire their good even over your own personal good. That's very powerful. And that's not just a that's not just an action, that's a a behavior that Paul is, is praying for here. And it's something that that must first be experienced before it can be expressed, right? You can't love someone else unless you have experienced love. By another, and we see this in First John four seven through eleven. Uh, but we must first experience love before we can actually express it to others, and so that's why Paul goes on to say that your love may abound with knowledge and discernment. I love this phrase. And we think of knowledge, or at least I, I tend to think of knowledge as information. Uh, That's not the idea Paul has here. The word here, epignosis, speaks about a different kind of knowledge. So this isn't informational knowledge. This is an experiential knowledge that Paul is, is praying for you and for me. Think of it this way. You might have informational knowledge about gravity. You might know the formula behind gravity and that it is a true reality. But when you are falling out of a plane with a backpack on you, strapped to you, hoping that it works, there is a different type of knowledge that creeps into your heart. Right? This is the idea that Paul is speaking about. We can have right doctrine and beliefs and information about Jesus, but he's praying right here for an experiential knowledge to rise up in our heart. Okay, Uh, That comes from from personal relationship, from lived experience. Then the the second word is, is very close in relation. He says all discernment. That is kind of a, a similar type of idea, of knowledge, except it's, it's also a practical outworking of knowledge. So it's not that we just know things about God, and not just that we experience what we know about God to be true, but we actually live it out in, exp- in full expression. It actually uh, drives our life. This is, this is the thing that Paul is saying. So if I could paraphrase that little phrase, Paul might say, I, I am praying that you would overflow in your capacity for love by knowing God, who is love, more deeply. That's a wonderful prayer. I pray for that for you. You should pray it for yourself and each other. That is a wonderful prayer in scripture. God, let, let me grow in love by knowing you more deeply. That's essentially what he's saying. But notice that it doesn't stop there. He then says, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, you know that your love is abounding. Not because you feel a certain way. Uh, Love can't be uh, truncated to be a, a mere emotion, you know that real love from the, the wellsprings of God's heart is abounding in your own heart when you end up obeying that same God. True love, the experience of God's love always results in obedience to Christ. There's no other way. Uh, the apostle John said in 2 John chapter one, "This is love." that we walk in obedience to his commands. Those things are inseparable. Obedience is actually the mark of a true disciple of Jesus. Yes, disciples are, they, they are filled with love, but it is an obedience that overflows out of a love for God and people. But this is not optional. It's not like there's a group of Christians who, who just kind of do the thing and go through the motions, but then there's like radical Christians that are like on a second tier from the rest of us that actually take Jesus' words seriously. No, there's only disciples of Jesus. That's it. There's people who are followers of Christ, and there's people who do not follow Christ. There's nowhere in between. Look at what Jesus says about this in that famous verse in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Jesus came and he said to them, he's describing what a disciple is right here, okay? He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not me, but him, me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you hear all of this? This language is just beautiful. He's speaking about what a disciple is. And and look at where it starts. What is the gospel? It is good news about the kingdom, God's rule and reign. Where does Jesus start with what a disciple is? First of all, it starts in reference to Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Discipleship starts with an idea of the kingdom in reference to the king and his kingdom. And then out of that, look at what Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Here's what a disciple is. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not merely saying I want you to dunk people and get them uh, physically wet. That, water baptism, is a sign of an inward reality. That's what Jesus is speaking about. I love how uh, the, the late Dallas Willard described this section of, of this verse. He's, uh, he described it as, th- this is a command by Jesus to immerse disciples into the life of a Trinitarian God. Immerse disciples in the life of the Father, in the life of the Son, in the life of the Holy Spirit. And out of that, look at what Jesus then says, the result of this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. A disciple is somebody who has intentionally desired to seek and follow Jesus, who is immersed in the life of God and is learning and desiring and doing all or endeavoring to do all that Jesus commanded them to do. And behold, he says, I am with you always to the end of uh, of the age. There is this presence there with us the entire time. Notice that Jesus never asked for us to make converts to christianity he never says anything actually about christians but he explicitly commands us to be disciples and to make disciples and there is what a disciple is this is where the love of god leads leads you to love first of all god and all the things that god says And out of that overflows a natural desire to want to do everything that he says because you actually think that it's good. And it begins to replace all of the other things that you used to love that were bad. But it's more than just being a person who does good things. It's more than just just do good stuff. Just get your checklist, your New Year's resolutions, if you will, and just finish off your list for the year. It's actually about the kind of person you are becoming. I'm getting this from the, the last line there, where he, he pins all of this together in this finishing line, saying, "Filled that you be filled with the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness. In other words, the effect of abiding in God's love and living it out should result in us being filled with the fruit of righteousness. It, uh, the fruit of righteousness, you can think of the, the fruit of the Spirit, which is another phrase that paul uses to describe the same thing love joy peace patience kindness goodness self-control notice that those aren't actually things that you do you can't peace somebody you can't joy your household those are manners of being this is who you are to become god isn't just interested in giving you new behaviors He's interested in creating you into the type of person that new behaviors spring out of naturally. He desires nothing less than to transform you into the image of his son. And the seed of love fully developed is the fruit of the spirit. Now, it comes out of someone who's been formed inside to have that same character of Christ. And those good acts Again, our second nature when you're controlled by the fruit of the Spirit. And you notice you can't control fruit. You either get bad fruit or good fruit. Went to Home Depot the other day and I saw a giant orange tree. And it was $14.50. And I ran home to my wife, Brianna, and said, I saw an orange tree that was 7 feet tall at Home Depot for $14.50. I'm going to buy 12 of them and plant them in my living room. Is that Okay. I went back to Home Depot and I noticed a typo. It was not 1450. it was $145. Uh, I thought, oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> but if you've ever had a plant, if you noticed, it gives you what it was meant to be. You can't plant an orange tree and get avocados or vice versa. You can only get a dead plant or a living plant that bears fruit. You were meant to bear fruit. And you are a specific type of plant, if I can use that word. A specific type of organism created in the image of God to bear a specific type of life-giving fruit. You will either bear that fruit or bear nothing. God's design for you is to bear fruit. And once, you you can't make fruit happen. I can get a tree, but I can't make oranges appear. I can only cultivate a garden and an environment for that tree to be fed and to grow. And then, as Paul would say, you know, we, uh, uh, Paul plants the church, Apollos waters it, but God is the one who causes the growth. We can cultivate an atmosphere where by the grace of God, we are filled and growing and the fruit comes. And once that fruit comes, you can't stop it. So I want to end right there. And just with a quick recap of where we've been. Paul gives a thanksgiving for what has happened. Wow, you're a community based on the, that's being uh, gathered together by the gospel. He promises what will happen. God will complete what he started. And third, he asks for something radical to happen now, that you would abound in love and it would lead you to obey the king of the kingdom. Notice there's this whole process, this whole trajectory. Pa- Paul is, is giving us a process, ongoing process in life, but he's also giving us a goal. He's not saying, "Hey, just go out into the wilderness and wander, and maybe you'll hit something, you know, formative and significant." No, he's saying, "There's a finish line for you. It is a process. You're going to spend your whole life doing this, but there's a, a clear-cut trajectory and an end goal in mind. You can finish, and you can finish well. And that's where the title of this sermon series comes from: What lies ahead? Forgetting, as Paul says uh, in Colossians, what lies behind; looking forward to what lies ahead. In fact, that very phrase, what lies ahead, comes from Philippians chapter 3 when he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do consider, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God and Jesus Christ. We stand in this building if you are in Christ forgiven, but you are more than just offered forgiveness. Once at a point in your life and then shoved off into a corner you, and, and just waiting for his soon return, whenever that is, you are offered a chance to be made fully alive in the presence of the Trinitarian God right now. To be formed into his image Basic Christianity is nothing less than allowing the kingdom of God into our lives to transform us in an ongoing process of discipleship to this Jesus man. We know it's working if our inner life and our outer behavior is being shaped. Our love and our obedience to Christ. You might ask, well, how is this even possible? I tried this year after year after year after year. Is this level of transformation self-generated? No. Now, we do put effort into it. This is not a passive thing. We work. We're going to see a lot of that in the book of Philippians, but it's not us. Remember, we're not alone. It's by the grace of God who is present with his people to change. And I'm getting that from this line. It doesn't end where I just left off. It says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ the video is right this is a story about Jesus and it is a story that God is calling you to be a part of and to engage in how do you start by being in Christ Uh, I'm just going to plagiarize Jesus words for a moment if that's cool with you I do that every Sunday anyway nothing original John 15, 4 through 11. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And let's just let our minds focus on this passage. Listen to this. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this, by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be with you and that your joy may be made full. If I can give a brief purpose statement of the book of Philippians, it's that following Jesus means coming fully alive together in any circumstance that life throws our way. In and through the life, participating in the life of someone greater than ourselves, than our community, than our church, than anything we can imagine. The man, the God, Jesus Christ. And learning step by step to conform to him. If you're having trouble with even figuring out what that even means, just start small. Start with the word that Jesus gave us right there. Abide. For you, that might just mean letting that desire in you start to kindle. Maybe you can even start there with a prayer. Maybe you've never desired to seek after God in your life. You can't even imagine being conformed to his image. Start by asking, Lord, give me the desire today. As the psalmist declares, that's what God does. God says to me, the psalmist declares, seek my face and my heart responds to you. Your face, Lord, do I seek? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Perhaps the only thing you have to do today is to ask God for a hunger, and when the stomach, the gut, begins to rumble inside you, begin to eat, metaphorically speaking, of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and his presence, which is with you to the end of the age. Heavenly Father, may it be done according to your word as we worship through song and prayer and the sacraments. May you teach us, not by information alone, which is what I gave, but by epignosis, lived experience, that you are love and you are light and you are present to complete in people what you've started in them. Maybe you have, maybe there's people here who have never started to begin with what it means to follow you. Pray that you would show them right now. Pray that in this place we would begin to abide with those baby steps, simply abiding in the love of God in Christ Jesus. And in that place of love, may you teach us more about yourself. Hallelujah. Hallowed be your name your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation in 2017, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.